Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, we welcome back Osiris Rex from its recent asteroid adventure with Mr. Universe. And we'll learn about the beating heart of Afro-Latin dance with Brendali Cepeda and Saul Peñalosa of Bomba de Aquí. But first, the cutest and newest way we could think of to celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month. It is Hispanic Heritage Month, or whatever you'd like to call it. And today we're going to learn... Don't just say that. About... It can't be whatever you no, want to there's call a, it. No, there's some debate about whether it's Hispanic Heritage Month, whether it's Latino Heritage Month, whether it's Latinx, whether it's Latine. But what we want to focus on here is all the super cool Latin-based culture that surrounds us, largely surrounding the Spanish language. And we're going to do just that right now when we learn about Bomba. Bomba de Aquí is a dance and music company that performs and teaches Afro-Puerto Rican traditions throughout Western Massachusetts, providing workshops and public schools, colleges, churches, and other community venues. Not just Massachusetts, though. I saw that you taught a class out in Providence recently. Yes, we did. Oh, the Bomba spreads. (laughs) Yes. They educate the community about the history of Afro-Puerto Rican music, foster understanding of the richness of Puerto Rican arts, and encourage active participation in that heritage. It's particularly important for Latino, Latine, Latinx, Latina students, but everyone is welcome to learn about this, and instruction is in both Spanish and in English. Bomba de Aquí is directed by Brenda Liz Cepeda, dance teacher, and she is the granddaughter of the great Bomba performer Rafael Cepeda. And she learned the art and its history in her family, first appearing on stage at the age of five. She has a BA in education, an MA in special education, and has taught special education in the Holyoke, Massachusetts school system for many years. Bomba de Aquí's musical director and Brenda Lisa's husband, Saul Peñalosa, is a well-known percussionist and performs with other ensemble members and professional musicians to bring this music to our region and beyond. For those who are not familiar with Bomba, what is Bomba, Brenda Lise? Thank you for the intro, by the way. You're oh welcome. my goodness, I feel so good. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. wow, I really got to bring my A game. <laughs> no, you, you already intro. brought your A game. We're just telling people about your yeah. A game. Thank you. Um, so Bomba came from our ancestors from Africa many, many years ago. It landed in Puerto Rico in the area of San Juan. The area that I cover for my family is Santuce, and I say it with proud and and happiness and joy because it's not only a culture that landed in Puerto Rico, right, by our ancestors, by the slaves that came to Puerto Rico, but also it gave us a sense of identity, Mm -hmm. culture, who we are, how we're connected, and from there formed other things as well. The word bomba came from the drum that came from Africa that they called Congo. So they used the barrel to transport goods like, you know, rum, fish back then. And then within time, they made into a drum. Congo, barrel, drum, bomba. That's how the word evolved. As we move along many years later, it became a word of sense of healing, physical movement. But even though you're moving and dancing, you're healing inside as well. Mm. And now Bomba also is connected to revolts, right, of things happening. Uh, One of the examples uh, that was used a lot is Black Lives Matter. We represent it with Bomba because we wanted to heal, but we wanted to be a part of the community. So Bomba has many meanings. One of the coolest things I think about Bomba is that when you see it, it looks like conversation. 
between the body of the dancer and the bodies of drummers, just that in engagement. And I feel like that's on purpose. Like it has to be that connection of conversation. Can you talk about the connection that you have yes. with the drummer? So drumming, uh, really important that we are connected because you have the main drummer, which is called the primo, and then you have the dancer, which is would be, you know, me or whoever else is coming to dance in front of the primo. That connection alone is the connection of the dancing, of how the movement, and the drum following the movement. And I'm going to let Saul talk a little bit about that. The bomba um, is... Um big and huge and the communi- the communication to to dancer is so important i don't practice with brenda nothing that is spontaneous it's uh, just spontaneous <laughs> i see the, the the movement and playing that's it it's yeah, what i know i don't practice and nothing and unlike Natural. other art forms or dancing it's you are following brenda's lead as the drummer rather than vice versa you're not brenda dancing to whatever rhythm Saul puts down. No, it's it's what I'm dancing and he is following. And that connection is really important because Bomba has many rhythms, mm-hmm. right? Also, it's important to know that the rhythm that you decide to dance to, for example, Sika, you still have to follow the rhythm, the maintain the beat and also maintain the basic step. All that follows along. But what you feel inside is what's going to come out when you're dancing. And that's really important. That's where everybody is like, wow. And that's what I want to teach everybody as well. We're speaking with Brenda Lee Cepeda and Saul Peñalosa, who are from Bomba de Aquí, which are the go-to bomba instruction organization in the 413 and beyond for sure. What I think is really interesting uh, Brenda Lise, is that your grandfather is in some ways the chronicler of this art form that has been handed down generation after generation. Can you tell us about your grandfather and what made him start to preserve this bit of cultural heritage for Puerto Ricans? Well, I am so honored, blessed to come in a long line of uh, tradition because that is something that I hold very strongly, very deeply, and that's what I move forward with. This is what I do 24-7. I eat, breathe, sleep, bomba, <laughs> tradition <laughs> and folklore. There's nothing else I could do right now. <laughs> and I and Saul, too, he the same thing. And um, so my grandfather, wow, back in 1910 is when he was born, but back in like the 20s, 30s, 40s, that time frame, he knew that, Bomba was kind of leaving, right? Because if you think about it, the slaves would get together in una hacienda, like a, a, a area where they were able to allow to play this music. So within time, you know, those years, Bomba was kind of like a roller coaster going up and down. It was there, but it wasn't there. It was kind of hidden. But my grandfather said, no, this needs to be out. This is our tradition. This is who we are. So he connected with other people in the community and even people that were seen in the TV, right, that was allowed to be seen in the TV, connected with them. And then they started bringing their bomba group. And it's kind of like the Jackson 5 because it was my grandfather and the kids, right? (laughs) My my aunts and uncles talking clear. (laughs) That was kind of like the Jackson 5. And, And from there, what made it huge was that they left from there to other places like Washington, D.C., New York. And that was huge. And not only my grandfather, I had to give props and and. 
present her wherever I go is my grandmother, Caridad Cepeda, who was a dancer in her area of Umacao and other areas as well. And my grandfather, my grandmother connected and they became one. But your grandfather was like taking notes about the mm-hmm. way things were, the way what people were wearing, and really preserving this as an archivist, which I think is amazing. One thing I was reading about Bomba that's particularly interesting is is the wardrobe. There is an mm-hmm. aspect of wardrobe that comes into the dance. Yeah. So uh, keep in mind, back in the times where uh, Bomba wasn't really out out, the wardrobe was pretty much the females would sew their own skirts. Mm-hmm. So you got to imagine what the skirts looked like back then. You know, very long, covering below the knees, to what they saw back in the 50s that the the skirts were out worn. So they created a bomba skirt that looked similar to like what the 50s skirts wardrobe was like. And then after that, they added the bows underneath with the, um, uh, I forgot how to say that name in English, but the under part of the skirts that are really long. They put they added bows underneath. Like, like a, a slip, yeah. like a you know Or like a crinoline almost. Right, right. Yeah. And so it made it more professional when they go out to dance. So, you know, the wardrobe went through many different phases. Does the wardrobe that change in the skirt change how the movement works? Definitely. Definitely. A lot of people have to realize if you have a bomba skirt, the skirts are longer, wavier, flow of how you can move the length of my arm. Like if I take my arm out to the right, my skirt is falling and going a little bit beyond my fingertips. You know, it's more allows us to do more steps. But if we go back to the 1950s, you won't see a skirt like that, right? Back then, they weren't even allowed to bring their skirt above their knee area, you know? So really different. We're speaking with Brenda Lee Cepeda and Saul Peñalosa about Bomba. Bomba de Aquí is their group out of Granby that is teaching Bomba throughout the four counties of Western Mass and, and beyond. beyond. You take Bomba and fuse it with other musical styles often. You've got a, a style that you have that's yours pretty much called Patu Plena. And then you have a, a group that you formed called Bomba Jazzeando. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes um, Bomba Jazzeando is a mix of Bomba with jazz. It's Bomba and jazzing. Yes. Yeah. That's the yes. literal translation. Literal translation. <laughs> at the same time. Yes. Yeah. There's a little bit mix on uh, Bomba and jazz um, with um, Julian Gerstein. He's um, a part of the, the Julian Jazz Band and Bomba Yaki. And the Batu Plena is a mix of Batucada from Brazil and Plena from Puerto Rico. That's how the rhythm part of, of Puerto Rico. Yeah, so talk about, because I always hear the terms Bomba y Plena together a lot. But they're different, but yeah. they're related. Do you want to talk about how they're related? The, the difference of the Plena is a, a three drums, hand drums. Uh-huh. Um, with a guido. Right. Uh-huh. The singer. The, the Bomba is um, more in, in seat. With the drums, in Spanish, bomba. That, that's the name of the barrels, bomba. And the qua is a, a two sticks. And, and the maraca with the singer. That's a different. 
<laughs> and the rhythms and everything is it's, totally, it's different. totally different. Mm. And yeah. the bomba has a little bit of the Taino roots too, uh -huh. with the maraca, with the gua, you know. It's so more feeling, right? It's like, more of a mm. feeling as well. And too. that's coming from more of the indigenous community yes. of the island, yeah. merging it with the African community yes. on the island. Yes. That's that's amazing. Is it hard to merge jazz like with a style that relies so much on being able to see? The dancer, like, it's so improvisational. Well, it seems like it should fit, but when you bring in horns, sometimes that's that's an extra difficulty. <laughs> that's a mix of, of, so, uh, um, of feelings and improvisation. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then Together. you have the yeah. composing it, right? Mm -hmm. So sometimes it can be a little difficult, but when you put it together, it sounds so good. It's pretty incredible. Brenda Liz Cepeda and Saul Peñalosa, who are part of Bomba de aquí here in Granby and beyond teaching the community. How do young kids, especially Puerto Rican young kids, respond when you give them a lesson in this? Is it something that they're like, I'd rather listen to Bad Bunny. I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to learn Bomba. That's my grand that's my great, that's my great grandpa's music. Hey. Or does it really resonate with them? Does is there something that catches? It's a mix. Mm. Also, Bad Bunny rules, by the way. Yes, we like Bad Bunny. <laughs> like I'm not going to lie. I like to. But that, that, that's a mix. Definitely. Yeah. We have some youth that are, you know, it brings them back to their hometown, right? Because mm -hmm. they don't live in Puerto Rico no more. They live here. And then you have some youth that are like, uh, you know, maybe born here. But they, their background is from Puerto Rico, so they don't know a lot about the tradition and culture. So it opens up those doors. What we do opens a lot of doors. And by the way, we do it through our other program, through Multicultural Learning Center. We have... In the schools. In yeah. the schools. So we started with Bomba de Aquí back in 2016, around there, 2015. And then about three years ago, I told uh, my husband, I said, Saul, you know... Um, It's time, and he was like, "Time for what?" And I said, "Was well, time to bring this into schools." By doing that, you know, I let go of my other career, which was teaching full time, uh, special ed, and I went directly to the schools. And I have to say, we are really blessed because all schools were for it. Currently, three years, we are planted the seed in our program in Springfield, Holyoke, and now Connecticut. Oh, cool. I think that's so great. Is it Thank like a, a like a small program or is it recurring like an after school sort of thing? So we have some schools that were there from September to June. We have some schools that we are there for the period of, of you know, Hispanic month. And then we have eight schools that we go time to time. So maybe they need us for October, but then we have to come back in, I don't know, January. Last year we had 20 schools. This year we, we're starting with 10. Before we let you go, is there anything we can learn? You don't have any drums with you right now. We don't have any music with us. But anything we can use, the drums that are around us, to show us, especially you, Saul, who's the, the band leader of Bomba de Aquí, about what makes for a bomba beat? Oh, you're right. But before, you, before you do eso. that, yes, before <laughs> you do that, I do want to announce that our studio was in Granby, but now it's moved to Holyoke. Uh -huh. So uh, a surprise will be, you know, on our Facebook and to let people know we got a home in Holyoke. And we continue working in the schools, so everything's slowly putting together. Congratulations. Thank, Thank you. you. Perfect place for you, I think. The Bomba Rhythms, um, the, the more famous. It's, the name is Hika. It's like... Dun -ka -dun, dun -ka -dun, dun -ka -dun, dun -ka -dun. 
Everything is a drum. Yeah. I got the bomba. <laughs> but also, like, you feel like we're only playing on tables, but the minute you get, like, a second person, a third person in, it just, like, swells. It's hard to, like, deny. Yes. And then yes. Brenda Lee starts dancing. Saul starts changing it up a little bit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Have you ever done a class on modern versus old school bomba? You know, I always wanted to. Mm. I really do. And I put it out to a lot in the universities because I feel like the universities, the more older crowd would would appreciate it and i'm just waiting for that chance oh it'll come i mean i'm curious yeah <laughs> it, it right? can't just be Isn't me it? there's got to be a grant out there we'll exactly. find it, we'll have to find it. <laughs> thank well, you thank you so much brenda lisa peda and saul peñalosa from bomba de aquí formerly of granby and now soon, uh, to, be of soon to be of holyoke for giving us this little lesson in bomba thank you thank look you. out for where they're teaching next you can find out all about Bomba de Aki's upcoming appearances on their Facebook, Instagram, or on their website, bombadeaki.com. But one of them, one of their projects that we talked about in that segment, Bomba Jazeando, is going to be at um, you'll he- a place you'll hear about on the Fabulous 413 tomorrow, the North Quabbin Garlic and Arts Festival. There's a great lineup at that very affordable festival in the very outskirts of our listening range in the fabulous 978. And we'll talk <laughs> all about that with one of the festival's founders, Deb Habib, tomorrow on the show. Still counts as Western Mass. Yes. Uh, we'll discover what Springfield's cutest new dual language school, Germa, oh my goodness, Herman Erena Elementary. Well done. Ah, uh, I you're, can get there. You're listening to the fabulous 413 on NEPM. <laughs> It feels like we've been called to the principal's office. We're literally sitting on a couch outside the principal's office. I know, and this the structure is so brutalist like my elementary school was. It was just sort of like, wow, I'm having massive flashbacks. I know, although they have a gorgeous mural outside. I know, I took pictures. We're at the Herman Arena School here in Springfield. It is Latin American Heritage Month. It's Hispanic Heritage Month. It's a celebration of all things Latin culture. And one incredible thing that has happened here at this school this year is the dual language program. What's your name? I'm Cynthia Escribano. I am the building principal. Are we in trouble? You're not. We had to wait outside the principal's office. It was a little bit intimidating. You're not in trouble. Okay, good. It was very nostalgic. And what's your name? I'm another Cindy, Cindy McCarthy. Oh, that's going to make it so easy. This school has this year decided to adopt a dual language program. Tell us, for those who, I mean, if it doesn't make sense on its face value, what that looks like in this school. Um, so we instruct in pre-K right now and kindergarten. Half of our day is in Spanish and the other half is in English. So students are exposed to both languages during the school day. This school goes up through fifth grade though, right? So is this uh, hopeful that it would expand into the other grades as well? Cindy M. <laughs> yes, exactly. So the, our next year, our current kindergartners who are in our dual language program will then graduate to the first grade dual language program and each year that cohort will go to the next grade. Are you the only school that's incorporated this program this year or have other schools in Springfield adopted the system? 
Principal Cindy? As of right now, we are the first elementary school to implement the program in Springfield Public Schools. No wonder people can't get it. <laughs> yeah, we had, uh, I don't know if we should fully disclose who it was, we had a guest on a couple weeks ago that was hoping to get one of their, the people in, the kids in their life into this school. And it is a magnet school, and I feel like, you know, a lot of places in the Valley don't have magnet schools per se, um, like they do in New York City. So tell us about how the process works to get into this school. Yeah, so you are correct. We are a magnet school, so it is a lottery. So parents, when they're signing up, we may have a wait list, so they get placed on the wait list, but that's how we started the process through a lottery. So mm -hmm. they signed up if they were interested, and we selected our students, and here we are. But unlike a charter school, it still falls under the umbrella right. of the school committee of Springfield. Yes. It's democratically run. There are many opportunities for many school districts to do what are called Horace Mann charter schools, which are like magnet schools, where you could have a focus on a thing like a dual language school, and yet would have more of the democratic process with your tax dollars at work. That's my little rant about charter schools. During the W. Bush administration and No Child Left Behind and some of the legacy of what happened with that in the classroom, there was a time where another language apart from English was not allowed to be spoken in a classroom. Even if you were in an area where, say Springfield or Holyoke or wherever, where there might be a large percentage of people speaking another language, the teachers could get in trouble if they would speak in another language. What's changed to make a school like the Herena School and dual language possible? So I think Desi has really identified Department the need. of Education and <laughs> Secondary Education. Yes. Is that what it is? Yeah. Um, the need, and we're just really excited to celebrate the richness that our students bring from language to culture. Um, and it's a beautiful thing to see now when we go upstairs and we see our you know preschoolers and our kindergarten students engaging in both languages. They're mm -hmm. pretty resilient. They're learning pretty quickly, wouldn't you say, Sin? Absolutely. There have also been studies that show students who are in dual language they tend to close the gap faster than students who are in other types of language support systems. In some philosophies of, of language learning, oh, if you teach a kid when they're too little two languages, they're slow to develop in both languages. This is our first year. Yeah. We're literally just two weeks into the school year. <laughs> they don't know all Spanish yet or all English? Yeah. But the research that we've done in the, in the coursework that we've taken at our level is saying just the opposite. Uh -huh. That's younger students, you're celebrating both languages, um, you have this opportunity to see the similarities and differences, and there are so similarities, especially in English and Spanish, where students would just make connections to what they're learning, and it's not a struggle. That's what we've learned. So we haven't seen it in action yet. Like I said, we're just in pre-KK, <laughs> and we're hoping to see that what we've learned is true. How has the process been for the teachers here for this process? Has it been like a bit of an uphill battle or has it been easier to adopt and adjust to the students in this program? Um, I don't have to say we have some really amazing educators on our team who were willing to take on the work and they've been engaged in coursework as well to prepare to open the program. They have been 110% in really developing their knowledge about dual language so that they can support our students. My wife spoke to my children in Spanish and one of the things that was interesting in a predominantly English-speaking culture that we, where we live she would speak to them in Spanish, but they would answer back in English. So what have been some of the anecdotal things that you've observed in the classroom? Has there been some students that answer back in only Spanish and some students that answer back in only English, no matter what language they're being spoken to? 
Probably, but yeah. like I said, we're just starting. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> two weeks. Two any, weeks. Yeah. So, but yes, and that's okay. Yeah. That's all right. You you answer in the language that you feel most comfortable answering in right now. Mm -hmm. And as our program develops, we're hoping that when you're in the Spanish classroom for that 50% of the day, that you will start answering and speaking in Spanish. But if you're not ready for that just yet, then you speak in the, the language that you feel most comfortable in, especially mm -hmm. in the younger, mm -hmm. younger grades. You will both obviously speak English, and we're speaking to the principal of the Herena School in Springfield and the dual language coach, uh, both named Cindy. We could do the rest of this interview in Spanish, but it would be hard for at least two of us. Yes, that's right. So what's your both of your relationships to Spanish? Principal um, so Cindy? I am a bilingual um, individual, so uh -huh. I speak. Your last name is Escribano? Escribano. Uh, could, it couldn't be more perfect for like a Spanish language learning. It's like a joke written in Spanish into your name. <laughs> yeah, but I am a I'm a biliterate individual, and, and you know I'm really excited that we get to celebrate um, the language that our students bring to this community, and it's wonderful. Even when I'm taking kids out of the car, like engaging in them, you know, with them in Spanish, and families are really excited, and we're just as excited, and kids are really excited to be speaking two languages right now. Escribano, Cindy Escribano, was awarded the Amplify Latinx 100 Latin Leaders mm -hmm. Award this year. So they're a nonprofit um, organization that really promote Latinx leaders in Massachusetts. And so those who are making an impact in communities that are with um, high Latinx populations, we were being honored and I happen to be one of those. Congratulations. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> I do not speak Spanish yet. Aha, uh -huh. so you're learning yet. Spanish too. I'm as learning part of it. Spanish, which is beautiful because we're starting in pre-KK and that's uh -huh. kind of where the level I am right now. So yeah, I know in those classrooms and I'm learning with the kiddos. Yeah, me too. If you give me a children's book in Spanish, I'm mostly good yes. there. If you give me anything much more in depth, I have a hard time with it. How are you able to coach and, and only be fluent in English at this point? That is a beautiful question and that was something that I was struggling with. Yeah. But we have a network in the Valley. So mm -hmm. there's the Holyoke Public Schools and Amherst and there are other districts that have dual language programs. Mm -hmm. So working closely with them, um, working closely with the principal Escarbano to help me in those classrooms if needed and just having a really nice strong relationship with the teacher just helps. We have a Spanish-speaking teacher and an English-speaking teacher in kindergarten. We sit together and we plan together. Mm -hmm. What is the English teacher doing? What is the Spanish teacher doing? They use the same curriculum. So then if the Spanish teacher has some questions about what's coming up, we can brainstorm some ideas together based on all of our knowledge at the table. And again, it's not just language. They're not just learning Spanish no, and learning English. They're learning the math that in Spanish. Yes. Yes. In that grade, yes. Right? Yes. yes, we want our students to graduate as biliterate students, being able to read, speak, and write mm -hmm. in Spanish. Which is different in the way that you're nuancing it than just strictly bilingual? Correct. Correct. Yeah. There are three pillars to dual education, to dual language. I mean, you could think of it as the ABCs. So we want high academic achievement. We want biliteracy and bilingualism. And then we want high cultural competency for all of our students. How many kids are in the program right now with the pre-K and K? About 80 students right now. Uh-huh. Are other Springfield schools like watching your model, kind of seeing how it turns out and like waiting to implement or, or see how they too can implement this? It's possible. We are the first school, so I think, you know, folks will be watching us to see what our results are. In that light, are you expecting for there to be a 
middle school dual language program in, I see cross fingers, um, <laughs> in Springfield for your kids when they are done here. Yeah, that's the goal. Um, and working with the district, the goal is to have that so that our students can continue in middle school and then proceed on to high school to graduate with the seal of biliteracy. So basically, Springfield has about nine years to get a high school in order for this to keep working. But the middle school clock is ticking. <laughs> Do you already have teachers lined up for the other, or, or are, is this a constant search for your Spanish half of the grade as this goes on? Because we're in K and pre-K right now, but next year you'll need a first grade teacher and the year after second grade and so on. Um, I would say for the most part, we're pretty lined up. We are still looking for a few more um, biliterate educators. But yes, we are a school that is very proactive and we don't like to wait to the last minute. So <laughs> we really believe in coaching and developing our staff. And so it was really important to us to line up as much as possible so that we are building our team's knowledge so that when we are ready to launch, dual language in each given grade level, our teachers will feel pretty successful. I wish that I had a school like this I when know, I was right? a kid. <laughs> I agree, absolutely. Especially, um, unfortunately you can't see this, but if you walk into those, the kindergarten and pre-K classrooms right now and you listen to them to see what the students are able to do so quickly yeah. at the beginning of the school year and how students who are predominantly Spanish-speaking their faces just light up when the teacher is talking to them in Spanish and when they can answer in Spanish and then when they can help a student who's speaking is more dominant in English, they can help that student sitting next to them learn Spanish and then it's vice versa when they go into the other classroom. Mm. It's just a beautiful thing. Yeah. It's too early for me to ask this question because you're two right. weeks into the school yeah, year. That's okay. But I'm curious how <laughs> the parents of especially predominantly Spanish speaking or like either uh, sets of parents have reacted to this program besides trying to get their kids in? They've had a very positive reaction. As we said, our goal is for students to be biliterate. So we really want that commitment from our families to stay with us um, so that students can really master both languages before they go to middle school. So at the beginning of the school year, we had um, families come in so that we can talk a little bit more about the, what the program looks like. And on multiple occasions, parents, we had parents crying, happy tears, saying, thank you so much for doing this. We just moved here from Guatemala. We don't want our child to lose the language. That phrase, we don't want our child to lose the language, came up more than once mm. in a day of smaller groups of families coming in with parents just so thankful for this program. Principal Escribano, did you grow up speaking bilingually and biliterately? I did. So no. my mother is bilingual. She's biliterate. Um, she came from the Dominican Republic when she was 15 years old, mm -hmm. and my father um, came too. Um, so both my parents spoke Spanish, but my mother was the only one that spoke Spanish and English so throughout my life, and you know, just speaking both languages, taking Spanish in school um, where I grew up, and so that's how I was able to learn how to read and write in Spanish. What do you imagine a school like this would have meant to you as a young person with the background that you? had come from? I think having a school like this would have given me a little bit more um, empowerment in dominating my Spanish language. It's always English, 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 but it really embraces what our students bring to the table. And it would have been nice and would have given me a little bit more confidence. Mm. Um, sometimes we think that our Spanish is not good enough 
And so I think that a program like this really allows students to excel and master two languages to give them that confidence as well. Cindy McCarthy, what would a school like this have meant to you as somebody who is monolingual now, but working towards being bilingual? Oh my goodness, I can't even... I'm trying to learn Spanish now as an adult, mm. and it is a struggle. I don't know if any of your listeners also are adults who are learning a new language, but it is really hard as an adult to do so. Mm. To be able to be immersed in two languages as a young child, and then be able to speak it, and then connect with other people throughout the world, would just be a blessing, it would be great. Being a magnet school, the Springfield Public Schools, and being that we already know somebody who couldn't get their child in, is there a time frame when people should be thinking about this? If they have students who they would like to get into this school? I mean, the sooner the better. Uh -huh. I mean, so if it it's, gets open all the time yeah. to just put in an application? Yeah, and if it's a preschooler, I would definitely enroll students in, note when they're going to student assignment services that would like, they would like to be a part of our dual language program um, so that we can get them in, hopefully. We're walking in the hallways of the Herena School. We're gonna go into one of the bilingual classrooms to get to hear the cute little kids speaking in all the different languages. Listos? So something about the makeup of the classroom, the students are around a third, a third, and a third. So one third mostly Spanish-speaking students, one third mostly English-speaking students, and one third who are bilingual already. Uh-huh. That's a great way to do it. <laughs> yes. We're bodyguards, so you better be careful. <laughs> what are we doing? We're doing a radio interview about the bilingual integrated classroom. Oh, who are you? Uh, I'm Monty. Uh, Hi. Nice to meet you. This Laura. is Khalees. Hi, Khalees. Nice We're from New England Public Media. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. This is Laura Mendes, and she is our I don't have prepared remarks. I don't, neither did I. She called me uh, yeah. over the loudspeaker. <laughs> I put you guys on the spot. We don't have any prepared so. questions, so don't worry. Okay. Yeah, She's the director of literacy for Springfield Public Schools. Oh, wow. Oh. So for the whole school system. For the elementary. So. Oh, for the elementary. Yeah. So tell me what your take is so far, only two weeks into this experiment here at the Herena School. I am so excited because these colleagues who are so esteemed and knowledgeable are reporting to me such positive interactions with families and students and educators in two weeks' time. I mean, it's all that we could have wished for. They've done such incredible work planning for this over the past two years. And, you know, when people say, oh, start something, they think it just magically happens. Yeah. It doesn't just <laughs> magically happen. And they took the time to do it right. And this is going to be an amazing program for our families in Springfield, having the opportunity for their children to to learn with both languages and to become bilingual and biliterate. It's just amazing. What does the future look like for the Springfield Public School System writ large with this sort of integrated language learning classroom? Well, I do think that the system at large is really closely watching to see the success of this program and will go forward knowing the results and learning from what worked and what didn't work. And I'm hope we're hopeful that it will spread. We hope that spreads too. Yeah. yeah. Way better than COVID. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Something you want to catch. Exactly. Yeah. Catch new languages. Yeah. Oh, I love it. That's, that, what a great uh, t-shirt. Too soon. Hace mucho tiempo le hago caso al corazón.
principal, Cynthia Escribano, and Cindy McCarthy, a dual language coach at the Herman Herrera School in Springfield, as well as Laura Mendez, director of literacy for Springfield Elementary Schools. Thank you so much for allowing us to run through your halls and see all of your drawings. It was genuinely the cutest and really inspiring. Yeah, we were a little bit of a distraction to that new um, class. Just a tiny bit, but but it was also really like not empowering, but again, like uplifting to be in that classroom and go, oh, wait, no, I still understand basic Spanish. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Up next, we'll see what OSIRIS-REx was able to discover from its recent asteroid encounter. And is it the stuff of annihilation like we've seen in the movies? You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, offering solar options, energy security, and solutions for the local community. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. To boldly go where no man has gone before. Time for some more kitchen table astronomy with Hampshire College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid at his table here in Amherst, Massachusetts. Today we're going to talk about the little-known dinosaur, Osiris Rex. That is correct. A ferocious one. (laughs) Oh, okay. Osiris Rex is not actually a dinosaur. What is Osiris Rex? So this is a very cool mission that went to an asteroid, orbited it for a couple of years, landed on it, dug down, got some samples, and just this past Sunday, it brought those samples back to Earth. Where was this asteroid? It depends upon its orbit. It's not parked somewhere. It's moving. It's, it is moving, yeah. and it is one of those asteroids. Incidentally, its name is Bennu, and this is one of those asteroids that uh, has a chance. I mean, it's, it's a low chance, but it's one of those asteroids that has a chance uh, to hit the Earth uh, in 2182, in fact, uh, to be very precise. It has a 1 in a 2,000 chance. What does Osiris stands for? Cyrus Rex. Well, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked. Origins, spectral interpretation, resources, identification, and security regolith explorer. Wow. Wait a minute. No laughing. Monty, now you have to repeat it. Nope. That's a great acronym, though. I mean, most of astronomy's acronyms are super boring. Osiris Rex sounds cool. Well, but that's the reason was, so this wasn't the other way around, because Bennu is an Egyptian deity, god of birth, regeneration of sun and other things. Bennu is a bird and a mythological bird, and Osiris is another god that is connected to that. So they came up with this really... I would say, unfortunate a sequence of word letters that actually make up uh, make up Osiris. But really cool to know that it's uh, linked to the Egyptian deity, both Bennu and Osiris. So astronomers want to know what kind of an asteroid that is. And again, I want to clarify, no, it's not going to hit us because even then the probability is pretty low. But this is one of those asteroids which are near-Earth asteroids and they are potentially threatening ones. And there were already a lot of surprises when this spacecraft, OSIRIS-REx, went close to it. Getting a sample from asteroid, I mean, it provides you a lot of, from pure science perspective, it is actually really exciting because it gives you a little 
not taste of it because you should not taste it. But <laughs> first thing I did was put it in my mouth. <laughs> but it gives you information about the early solar system because this is how this asteroid was formed. You do get pieces on Earth. Of course, the big ones can kill you too. But you do have meteors, meteoroids that come in and they're very interesting. And people find out that, well, they contain amino acids, they contain elements that are raw materials for life and so on and so forth. But they go through our atmosphere. So they get cooked. And it also, when they reach the ground, there's contamination from the ground. So even though some of the best samples are the ones, for example, if they crash in cold regions uh, in Antarctica, and people immediately try to get it and try to preserve it, all of that is good. But just imagine if you have a sample directly from an asteroid and you preserve it and make sure that it, when it goes through our own atmosphere, which this OSIRIS-REx sample did, then you may potentially have a really pristine sample of basically of this early solar system. It's giving you information of how solar system was four and a half billion years ago and what kind of things these asteroids bring to the Earth. Is it too early to know what that sample found that the return mission just arrived on Sunday? Uh, yes, it is too early. Here is your political plug to it. It's a, they're supposed to release more information in October. Uh, but of course, pending if the government stays open. Yeah. <laughs> so otherwise, we will have to wait. So if you have any complaints, please write to Matt Gates. Yeah. Just as a context, by the way, that is Wookie. Yeah. Hello, Wookie. <laughs> Wookie's like a guest host of this segment. Right. I think it's becoming quite popular with the listeners. But he does walk out too at this time in the middle. He goes like, you mentioned Matt Gates, I'm out. <laughs> exactly. There is a walkout here. But this particular mission that was launched in 2016, it caught up to that asteroid and then orbited it. And while it was orbiting it, while it was getting close, first of all, there was a surprise because they thought that there would be a smooth asteroid where you, they can actually grab some of the regolith on top, which would be smooth and just land, get it, and then later on come back. What they discovered was that it was actually made up of rubble, barely held on together with very low gravity. And so they actually had a hard time finding a good landing spot. And to think about the size of this asteroid, it's about half a kilometer uh, or like, you know, 0.3 miles or so, a little bit bigger than the Empire State Building. And so this is a small asteroid and they had to find a place where to land and this was tricky. So while it orbited it, it orbited a couple of miles above it. So just think about a spacecraft that humans sent out in the vastness of space. They're like, okay, where that asteroid would be? It had to catch up to that, slow down, and then orbit around it. And then it tried to find what would be the best place because some of the boulders on this asteroid were like several stories high. So they found sort of like, you know, this little spot, like, you know, that maybe they can go over there, land on it and immediately bounce back. And they had this sort of like a vacuum cleaner type thing that they could actually grab some of that material and bring it back. And it did that. This was in uh, 2020. Uh, successfully, it landed, it brought back, and it turned out that, in fact, it got too much stuff. So it couldn't close properly, and it was losing some of that material, that regolith. But then eventually, it got up to back to that spacecraft. So this is all happening a few million miles from us. In 2021, it actually started its journey back. And then on Sunday, it passed close to Earth, so around 63,000 miles. That's how far this spacecraft was when it released this capsule. So this OSIRIS-REx spacecraft, which is not a dinosaur, but if there was one, this would be the cool one. <laughs> it went to 
Bennu the asteroid, which is a small asteroid, less than half a kilometer, landed on it, got the samples back 2021, got here 63,000 miles above the Earth's atmosphere. It released this capsule and they could exactly tell what time it's going to land and roughly where. There was a big landing area, but it landed in near Salt Lake City. But the timings were so precise. It said sort of like, you know, that, okay, around our time, it was, I think, like 1042 or something like that. That's when it's sort of like, you know, starting to descend. And it took about 10 minutes or so to descend from the atmosphere, a parachute open, and then it landed. And then a bunch of helicopters went there and actually tried to uh, get it because you didn't want some random person to say, hey, what is this? Let me open it up. I'm so, going to put it in my mouth. <laughs> exactly. The space spacecraft itself, it's off to its new mission, which is to another asteroid. So, uh, so that's a whole other fascinating thing that it's actually moving on. There's a potential that some asteroid somewhere may contain things that could be brought back to Earth, a la this OSIRIS-REx mission, and help us create an energy future. Is that a realistic thought? Is it like, would it have to be scaled up to a level that is beyond the pale? Or is this why science is going in this direction? In theory, asteroid mining is something that can help with natural resources. Uh, the question is how much effort, how much money has to go into that mission versus what you get back. So when sometimes people say, oh, this asteroid, for example, there is one, well, it has all these precious metals that are sort of like not trillion dollars or what a hundred trillion dollars, but it doesn't make much sense if it takes a lot more to go and get the extraction money out. So can in the future, can that type of thing happen? Possibly. Science fiction certainly like shows like The Expanse, for example, deals with that. Uh, but this type of an asteroid, Bennu, that is actually uh, what is called carbon-rich asteroid. So it has scientific value quite a bit. This is one of those asteroids that has sort of like, you know, probably organic compounds. We don't know this one, but NASA is not the first space agency to bring samples back from an asteroid. That honor belongs to JAXA, the Japanese space agency. And one of the interesting things, again, so why do we care about these things? In that analysis of that asteroid shows that it has actually, it has hydrated minerals, meaning to say there is water in there. And now, Astronomers think, people used to think that, well, comets were the primary source of water on Earth. But now actually astronomers think because of that analysis in part, that perhaps it's the asteroids that brought water to the Earth as well as amino acids. So we knew, know that amino acids are on comets. We knew about amino acids in asteroids too, but this one in particular, they could actually see that and including one really important molecule, uracil, which is actually part of the RNA molecule they detected signs of that. So one of the things that OSIRIS-REx team is doing is actually sharing data. They actually have some sample sharing with the Japanese space agency. And one of the fascinating questions would be, well, what are the similarities and differences between these two particular asteroids? The natural resources bit exploitation of the resources is there. But for this type of asteroids, I think there is a lot more that comes out of the scientific value, pure scientific value, I think that is pretty high. But there's one thing that really struck me, and that is that about 70% of this material, and, and, and if you're thinking about it, how much it's it, it's about half a pound of material from this asteroid. But 70% of it, they are going to actually set aside, pretty much in storage. 
So 25% is going to go to different research institutions. Uh, about 200 astronomers are going to share the data. 4% is going to the Canadian Space Agency. And then uh, about 0.4% to Japan. But to me, it was just really fascinating that 70% actually they are setting aside. And that is because they want to keep it for when our technology improves. We can actually do better analysis of it for techniques that we don't have yet. To me, this is so cool that you get something really exciting. You get this chocolate fudge cake and you go like, I'm going to set aside for when I really want it. <laughs> you know? First thing I did was put it in my mouth. I think that's actually a lot of foresight into it. So that's cool. So we will have results coming from this particular asteroid, I think, in the coming uh, decades. Uh, but again, as I mentioned, where is OSIRIS-REx now? It's actually headed to another asteroid. It's not done yet. If you were to take one thing out of this, just think about it. This mission went out in space. It went for 4 billion miles to this asteroid. Then it came back and then it launched this capsule when it was 63,000 miles above the atmosphere. And this sample that it had gathered from landing on Bennu grabbed it and back. I mean, it's just amazing what humans can do if we stick to the positive things. Yes. Good words of advice to stick by. Stick to the positive things. Indeed. As much as you can. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. It seemed like with the few minutes that we have left, that we could do what I would like to call leftovers, which means <laughs> things that we would have liked to have talked about that have already happened and things no, that we would I, like I, to talk about up, that I, are about to happen. Yes. So let's start about with the things that have already happened that we wanted to just highlight, including what you did this weekend, Khalees. Oh, I went to see the Breeders because I am that girl. And they played Last Splash in its entirety live. And it was absolutely amazing. I was restored. For those who don't know who the Breeders are, who are the Breeders? So the Breeders are a band that was initially started by Tanya Donnelly of Then Throwing Muses and Belly and Kim Deal of the Pixies. As local connection. Local connections. And in fact, like still local, they formed it in Boston. So their Breeders are kind of technically a Boston band. Totally. Um, but they, Tanya Donnelly then left to do more belly stuff and Kim Deal and her sister became kind of the core of the band. It's gone through several lineup changes, including the one we saw, I saw on Sunday, but it was absolutely fantastic. On Sunday, you saw a punk rock legend. Yeah, well, where did you see the Breeders at? Oh, in Boston. Now I, in the fabulous 413, saw another punk rock legend, Henry <laughs> Rollins of Black Flag and the Rollins Band fame, yes. but playing no music. He did a spoken word, was sold out. He started exactly at eight o'clock and talked a mile a minute with no breaks, no water, and I think no blinking till 1020. It was an incredible show. That was amazing. So uh, quickly, the leftovers, you want to talk about something oh. you're doing. Yeah. So Porch Fest happens in East Hampton on Saturday, and it's basically in, on people's porches in one neighborhood of East Hampton. And my band, Extemper, in a small truncated form will be playing it. So come early. And Hear us. Sunday at the Pines Theater at Look Park, there is a fundraiser playing in the Pines. It's got some great local bands that we know and love here, like the Lonesome Brothers. Uh, it's got three stages, and it's all to benefit the Pines Theater at Look Park. Tomorrow, we'll talk about more music with Chris Freeman of the Parlor Room fame. 
I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. We'll talk tomorrow on The Fabulous 413.